We turn again in the scriptures now to the gospel according to Matthew. And we're going to read uh, some verses from Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we're going to read from verse 6 down to the end of verse 16. Matthew chapter 26, beginning to read at verse 6. Matthew 26, then verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Amen. Let's just bow again in a moment's prayer. Lord, we would ask that you would speak to us this evening as we come to your word. Lord, we would come with an open heart, with open ears, with open eyes, Lord, if our ears are closed by our own sinfulness, Lord, we pray that you would open them, that we would be able to say truly with Samuel of old, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Be with us, we ask. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can picture the scene. A woman comes into a room as various people sit around eating in the house of Simon the leper. People watch with Bated breath as she approaches Jesus. What's she going to do? What's Jesus going to do? They watch in astonishment as she pulls out a flask and she begins to pour ointment on Jesus' head. And then, it would indicate in verse 12 and the parallel passages over the rest of Jesus' body as well. The woman finishes and she hears a murmuring. Perhaps in part because of the socially shocking nature of what she's just done. But the murmuring is not simply about the impropriety of her action, though it may have in part been that. More significant is the apparent wastefulness of her action. This perfume, this ointment, is expensive. Matthew tells us that here in verse 7. But in Mark's account, we learn that it was in fact worth more than 300 denarii, which was around a year's wages. So this is expensive stuff. And it's not well received. The disciples, or at least some of them, begin to murmur. What they see is wasted money. Look at verses 8 and 9. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Well, I want us to look at this this evening. I want us to look at this action, the actions of this woman, 
This woman who is unnamed in this passage, but uh, who we know from um, John's account is Mary of Bethany. And we're going to look at three points, three things about, well, two things about this and then one thing about what happens immediately after. But three things. First of all, a generous love. Secondly, a glorious memorial. And then thirdly, a grievous mistake. Well, first of all then, a generous love. Firstly, I want us to look at this act itself here this evening. An act which initially, it will be fair to say, appears quite shocking. We're talking, remember here, about a year's salary being poured over the head of Jesus. Now, perhaps you say, you know, a gesture from Mary to one of the Lord Jesus might have been appropriate. But to pour a year's salary over his head, surely that is just wasteful. Now, we hear, don't we, about so-called celebrities who will spend what would probably be a year's salary for most of us on a, an outfit they're only going to wear on one occasion. And it does seem wasteful, and our inclination is, perhaps in these circumstances, to say, well, you know, if you wanted to just throw a year's salary out, then you may as well have given it to somebody who could actually use it. But is what Mary does in that kind of category? Well, from one perspective, there is something right about this instinct that perhaps most of us have, that there is such a thing as, as a wasteful extravagance. And for all that this narrative here pushes back against a, a certain view of things, a, a sort of view that would make the most important part of Christianity activity against poverty, nonetheless, this narrative does not and is not intended to suggest that we do not need to worry about the poor. In fact, when Jesus says, you always have the poor with you, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 15.11, which then goes on to speak about how, because the poor are always with you, you must be generous to the poor. Nonetheless, for all of that, something about these particular circumstances, which makes what Mary does here peculiarly appropriate. And that's this. Jesus is going to die. Matthew makes that crystal clear for us in the way that he frames this narrative. In the verses immediately before, right at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die. Couldn't get much more clear than that. Matthew 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then in verses 3 and 4, we read about the chief priests and and um, gathering together in, in the palace of Caiaphas, plotting how they're going to have Jesus arrested and killed. And then immediately after uh, this uh, anointing of Jesus at Bethany, Judas Iscariot, we read that bit, goes out and agrees that in exchange for 30 pieces of silver, he's going to trade Jesus. So it would be fair to say that... This event here marks the beginning of something which is the narrative of basically how Jesus was killed. Matthew 25 has some parables, but then Matthew 26 onwards is the narrative of how it is that the crucifixion came about. So Jesus is going to die soon. And Mary has picked up on that. That's what Jesus says actually there in verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Mary listened to Jesus. She sat at his feet, we read elsewhere. 
And she discerned what it would seem that the disciples, Jesus' closest disciples, the twelve, did not discern. That Jesus was saying that he was going to die. And indeed that this death was not going to be an accidental one. It was going to be a violent one. In fact, he was going to be put to death by the authorities as a criminal. That's the implication of Jesus saying there in verse 2 that he's going to be delivered up to be crucified. And ordinarily, criminals would not be anointed after death. And so it would seem Mary, moved by, her lo- moved by love for her Lord, anoints him now. She can't anoint him after death and she'll anoint him before. And the disciples here are missing the significance of this. Jesus has been telling them that he's going to die. And yet they still cannot grasp why what Mary does here in, as Jesus says, anointing him for his burial. They can't grasp why that would be important. But Mary sees it. She sees that this one who spoke the word of God in all his life, indeed who was the word of God incarnate, that that one was going to die. Indeed was going to die the death of a criminal. And so she she honors him. She rushes to honor him. She doesn't care about the apparent impropriety of bursting upon the scene in this way. She doesn't care about the expense in using this particular ointment. She cannot stop the death. At least she can ensure that Jesus' body is treated properly for burial. If not after death, then before. Now, did Mary understand what the significance of Jesus' death would be? That he was going to to die for sin? Well, maybe she did. She certainly seemed to perceive more than the the twelve disciples did. Certainly, she believed that Jesus, she believed Jesus when he said he would die, rather than as Peter had done when Jesus had said it, contradicting him. But for all that she may have perceived something of what was going to happen, maybe even something of its significance, she did not have the vision of it that you have. You can look back at the events of Calvary as history. You can look back at them as interpreted in the New Testament. You can see and behold with the eyes of faith, Jesus on Calvary as he dies for sin. Something Mary only for short saw in a vague way. You can understand its significance that there, the Son of God, the one who by nature could not die, the one who by nature could not suffer, that one, according to his human nature, a nature which he had voluntarily assumed, suffered and died for you if you trust in him. For you, one who is by nature a rebel against him. One who even as a Christian continues in your falling and failing. Not only did he suffer and die, but he took upon himself sin. Took upon himself the vilest thing that you've ever done. The thing that you're most ashamed about. Took that upon himself before the world crucified as a criminal. And before God condemned as a sinner. And he did it willingly. That's one of the... Things that this fact that Jesus was anointed for burial before his death and that he received it as such. It's one of the things that it shows. Is that this was foreordained. This was planned. This was according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This didn't just happen to Jesus. It didn't take him by surprise. It was something which he had known and which he embraced. Indeed, the purpose for which he had come into the world. The Son became incarnate knowing that it would lead to Calvary. 
And when faced with this, something far more, as we know in all, in all its fullness and detail. When faced with that, what is your response? Is it with Mary? Do you rush to adore, to praise, to honour, to offer? If you had that opportunity that Mary had, would you realise that, as Jesus says in verse 11 here, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have Jesus. Yes, you know, maybe, maybe pouring a year's salary over Jesus' head wouldn't have been a right thing to be doing every day. You know, perhaps if this had started to happen every week, Jesus would have put a stop to it. But at this point, it was right. And even beyond that, this principle still applies. That there is nothing so valuable that Jesus is not worth it. And so key is this event that I don't think that Mary, I don't think that Mary does this just for herself. She, she is, historically was the one to do it. But we are all invited to join her. We cannot be with her there on that night. But we can be united in spirit as we too pour out honour on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, does this principle work itself out in your life? I mean, it can work itself out in various ways. You know, one way would be giving financially to the church. And, and then once that's done to, to other believers as they're in need. To those who are part, in fact, of the body of Christ. I think sometimes we can forget that, can't we? But what does Jesus say? In so much as you did it to one of the least of these, my disciples, you did it to me. work itself out in the giving of time seeking the benefit of Christ's kingdom and Christ's body it will work itself out in what we do here together as we gather to praise God to adore him as we sing his praise as we hungrily hear his word preached ready to obey as we return thanks to him for his blessings as we devote one day a week to him, the Lord's Day. There is such a thing as a sacrifice of praise which the church continues to offer. It will work itself out ultimately in what we read about in Romans chapter 12. In our presenting our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And, and this presenting of ourselves as, as living sacrifices to God. That, that's going to involve a lot of those things that... That people sometimes think Christians ought to be doing as well as worship. All of that loving of our neighbours, ourselves. But it will be part of our response to God. It will be part of our response to the love that Christ has shown to us. And it will involve ultimately putting ourselves at God's disposal. Willing to endure whatever may come for his sake. Now, where are you on this? I feel like there is a, a gulf between us and the earliest Christians on this. I mean... Listen to what Paul has to say. Listen to what Paul says in, in Colossians. Colossians 1.24 when he speaks about how he rejoices in his sufferings on behalf of Christ's body of the church. As he joins Christ in his suffering. Colossians 1.24 Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of of his body, that is the church. Now, I should just mention in passing here that Paul isn't suggesting here that somehow there's, some, you know, there's something lacking in what Christ suffered in order for us to, 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 um, to be forgiven for our sins. What, 
He's not saying that at all. What, he, what he's saying, though, is that there is a certain amount that God of suffering that God has ordained for the building of his church. And what Paul's saying is that such is his love for Christ, such is his love for Christ's body, the church, that if he can be deemed worthy to share in Christ's suffering for the building of the church, that he'll rejoice in that. How far away that is from what our attitude often is. What we often want is just as, as little amount of trouble as we possibly can. Maximum ease, maximum comfort. But that wasn't Paul's attitude. Where are we on this? What's our response when we hear the name of Christ blasphemed? Can we hear Christ's name blasphemed endlessly and, and it's just water off a duck's back? It's something we hardly notice. What's your response when the church, the body of Christ is mocked? Harassed. When Christians, part of the body of Christ, are put to death for Christ's sake. Now all of these things, they ought to grieve us. They ought to move us. They ought to drive us to action, whether that's practical help, whether that's financial help, or whether it's just driving us to our knees in prayer to call out to him. But we ought not, certainly ought not to be indifferent. You know, what would you do if you heard someone using your, your wife or your husband's name? Or your mum and your dad's name? Or your best friend's name? Like a swear word. If they were misusing that person's body as people misuse Christ's body, the church. Would you just shrug your shoulders? I hope not. Well, if you shrug, shrug your shoulders when it's Christ's name, when it's Christ's body, then what does that say about you in response to what Christ has done for you? Have you offered yourself truly in adoration to the Lord Jesus Christ? And will you continue to adore him even here? Do you know what it is to honour Christ? You know, if you're a Christian here today, Christ's death, that death that we're speaking of, that Jesus is foretelling in this passage, that death is your life. It's a means by which you, who are, who are dead in trespasses and sins, have been made alive. To God, by that great substitutionary atonement whereby he took the penalty for your sin and indeed gave you his righteous status. What expense can be too much for him? What expense can even be sufficient for him? For that one who willingly, though he was God, took, himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, made himself of no reputation, willingly, freely, not out of any necessity, but out of love for his people. What can your response be? Can you enter into Mary's thoughts here? And you know so much more than she did. Oh, she didn't worry about how much this ointment was, was worth. What she could sell it for, what she could do with it. She simply rushed to honour her Lord. Her dying saviour. Well, that's the first point, a generous love. But secondly, we also have here a glorious memorial. Something else we need to see. Because Jesus tells us what to do with this story. He tells his disciples, verse 13, or the second, well, let me read the whole verse 13. He says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, then what does he say? What she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is going to be set up as a memorial for this woman. You know, all societies have stories that they tell, don't they? And it's often accompanied by a, a physical monument. 
And we recognize the importance of this instinctively. We when we see a, a statue somewhere, we, well, one of the questions we ought to ask ourselves anyway is, why was that there? What was that saying? What were the, the people who raised that trying to remind themselves and other people about? You know, we spent five years living in Edinburgh. And um, in, in, New in New College Quadrangle on the, the top of the mound there, in the middle of Edinburgh, you'll, you'll find a statue of, of John Knox, the great 16th century Protestant reformer. And the presence of that statue there, it says something about the importance of John Knox and of the Reformation for the people that, that put that statue there. Sadly, the truth is that probably the majority of people who walk past it probably have no idea who he was. But nonetheless, it, it tells something, the fact that that was raised. It says something about what the people who raised that wanted, thought was important, what they wanted to pass on to the next generation, what they wanted to remind them of. There may be um, things that might be more popularly known are things like, I'm, I'm a, a supporter of Liverpool Football Club, and if you um, go to Anfield, you'll find outside it a statue of Bill Shankly, the great um, manager from the 60s who who laid the foundations for what would become decades of, of dominance of football by, by that football club. But again, that shows something about what is important to Liverpool supporters. It's a story that told by father to son. You know, my father was a Liverpool supporter and he told me about Bill Shankly. And when Liverpool supporters go to Anfield, they see Bill Shankly and it says something about what's important for them, what they're like, what their story is, where they hope that they'll be going again in the future. But we're selective, aren't we, about the stories that we remember in this way. It's only the key stories, the most important that are remembered in this way. Not every minister involved in the Scottish Reformation has a statue on top of the mound in Edinburgh. Not every Liverpool manager has a statue outside Anfield. It's the key events. But Jesus here says that this story will be told as a memorial. This is one of the key events. And uh, there's a sense, of course, in which everything that's in the Bible is, is a key event. That's why it's recorded. But Jesus singles this out. And the apostles took this seriously. At least three of the Gospels in include this account. Arguably the fourth. It's in a different place in Luke and something else is in focus. But I would argue probably still the same event again. But certainly three out of the four Gospels have this. And the Bible tells us how memorials like this are to function. Let me just give an example what we read about the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Exodus 13. Let me just read a few verses to you. Exodus 13, verse 7. What did God say about this memorial? Unleavened bread sh shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And then what does he say? You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. In that case, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was to be a reminder of what God had done. To remember that the Lord was their God who had brought them up from being slaves in Egypt, that he was a, a gracious God, that he's a promise, covenant-keeping God. 
That he's a God of judgment and other things as well. But it was something that they were to, to pass on to their children. A story to be handed down from father to son and from mother to daughter. And when we're told here that this story is to be a memorial. This isn't just saying, Jesus isn't just saying, oh it's a nice story. It's something it might be nice to, to tell your children by the fireside sometimes. No, things are set up as a memorial for a reason. To remind us of something. Here, that devotion to Jesus is worth more than anything else. Jesus never says anything else like this in the Gospels. This is unique. There are great examples of faith. There are great examples of sacrifice. But here, this woman, Mary of Bethany, this woman who, representing the church, comes and she pours out devotion to Jesus, she is singled out. And I think this is the reason. She does something that all the disciples should have done. Recognizing what, happen, what is happening, she alone acts appropriately. And in doing so, she stands as a memorial and as a call for us to follow her example. We ask you, will you do that this evening? Will you set this up as a memorial? Will you remind yourself of it? Will you consciously join in with Mary's adoration as she, first of the church... And calling to the rest of the church, comes here and gives and pours out devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you set it up as a memorial to yourself? Will you set it up as a memorial, as a call to others? You know, those of you who are or may become parents or grandparents, remember the importance of setting memorials before your children. Read the Old Testament, it's full of how parents are to tell their children what these memorials mean. And that goes beyond, you know, it, it is important to, to make the, to, to say the words necessary to communicate it. But it's more than that. We need to live this as well. It's one thing to simply tell our children, so to tell, oh, you know, you can say, it's easy to say to your children, isn't it? Devotion to Jesus is essential and important. But it's something else to live it. Saying it, but then showing by your actions that that isn't actually what you think. That just undermines everything. Do we do this in our lives? It's your responsibility if you're a parent, it's nobody else's. You can't just pass this on to somebody else. Where are you on this? Will you do this? Will you set this up as a memorial for you and for others in your life? Well, that's the first two things. We've had a generous love. We've had a glorious memorial. But now, thirdly and finally, we have also here a grievous mistake. Because I want us to move on to the other character here. Judas has been watching this. We learn from John's Gospel that Judas' objection was because he was a thief. And he kept the money back. And so, when, um, when Judas sees this ointment being poured over Jesus' head, he sees his own sort of personal resources being poured over Jesus' head. Matthew doesn't note that, but he does go on to show what Judas Iscariot did next. Look at verses 14 to 16. We read these verses earlier. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. We have a contrast here. And what a contrast it is. 
One pours out a year's wages over Jesus' head. The other weighs Jesus against 30 pieces of silver. And he decides that actually he'll take the 30 pieces of silver. The price of a slave in ancient Israel. The story of Judas also is told, passed down through the ages, wherever this gospel is preached. But his tale is one of infamy. We've seen an example of devotion to Christ worthy of emulation. But it's also possible to be a hypocrite. Now Judas was at the fore, maybe even based on John's account, the ringleader in these pious sounding suggestions about how this money could have been sold and given, uh, how this, uh, the money that this was worth could have been spent on the poor. And now here he goes, having made those statements, pious sounding statements, holy sounding statements maybe. Yet straight from that he goes and he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. As I said before, the price of a slave in ancient Israel. And probably a deliberate slur upon Jesus to value his life in this way. Certainly when these events were prophetically acted out in Zechariah 11, the Lord calls this sum a a princely or lordly sum, in language which is clearly intended to be understood sarcastically. It is possible to outwardly walk the walk. It's possible to outwardly talk all the right talk, as Judas does even here. And yet, in fact, to have never known the Lord. To actually not value Jesus at all. For all your interest actually to be in the things of this world. Judas worked miracles in Jesus' name. Judas cast out demons in Jesus' name. He was one of the twelve. He was one of the the closest associates of Jesus. Don't let anybody here imagine that the fact that you're here this evening, that somehow that means that you must be in the clear. Don't imagine even that because you've witnessed for Jesus every single day of your life that that means that somehow that you must be all right with God. Judas could have ticked all of these things. Anyone could do these things outwardly for others to see. You know, how often does it turn out that somebody seemed to be the the sort of paragon of virtue and then he turns out to have been a a paedophile or a, a serial adultery or whatever it is. And it's possible also to imagine, as Judas does here, that wealth, or perhaps for you it's popularity or pleasure, that it's worth more than the Lord Jesus. As I said a moment ago, Jesus, he weighed up 30 pieces of silver and he weighed up Jesus. And he decided that the 30 pieces of silver were worth more to him. That they were more valuable. Now perhaps you're not betraying Jesus in precisely the same way that Judas did. But maybe you have also made the same calculation. The ability ability to pursue a sinful lifestyle. the, The good opinion of your friends or your family. Whatever it is, that those things are worth more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you made that calculation? Because let me tell you that Jesus is worth more. And it's not just for the salvation he offers, though it is, though there is that. What should it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? But also on the more positive side, what Jesus offers is the joy of knowing God through Christ. That God for whom you were made. 
That God from whom all that is good in this world flows. That God in whom is found the highest and indeed ultimately the only true God. That God for whom you were made and in search of whom you will continue restless until you find your rest in him. Let me ask you, look into your heart here this evening. Have you turned from all these other things? Or is there still something that you're grasping hold of? And maybe you are a Christian, but there's still something. And it's just in your heart. <laughs> Sorry. There's something and it's in your heart and you're still. You haven't let go of it. Something that you're holding out. Away from the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ that you're still keeping back for yourself. Is that you here this evening? Some secret besetting sin that you just won't let go of. Some earthly possession that you simply won't put upon the altar before him. Is that you here this evening? Maybe you indeed have made the ultimate decision that in fact you're here this evening but you know that you don't want to be. You've made the decision that the the life of this world is more important than the Lord Jesus. That you're going to reject him entirely. Well let me ask you, do not leave with that spirit here this evening. Know this, that Judas, even at this point, could have turned back. Even as he came to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he betrayed him with a kiss, he could have turned back. Or would you do that? Know this, that if you will trust in him, then that Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, came into this world and died on the cross, so that you could be saved if you'll trust in him. One would scarcely die for a good man, says Paul. Though perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends his love to us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's sinners that Jesus came to save. doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter you had made that valuation in the past like Judas did. But it's people like you that Jesus came to die for. Will you trust in him here this evening? Will you turn from sin to him and follow him alone? Will you follow Mary, emulate Mary? Rather than Judas. Well we're going to close. In a moment now. But we have here two memorials. We have Mary. A story to be passed down through the ages. A story that the good man shall tell his son. Of the necessity of devotion to Jesus. We have also Judas. A warning and a call. Not to make that same valuation of Jesus. Jesus. 